Welcome to the What's Next podcast with Tiffany Bova. Tiffany is a top-rated speaker, thought leader, and sales and marketing influencer known around the world as an industry visionary. Today, she's using her 20 years of sales experience to help companies focus on creating a high-growth culture while adapting to the new realities of the market. She's always asking herself, what's next? Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. I have the pleasure today to welcome Tendai Vicky. He is an author of the books, The Corporate Startup, talking about how large companies can build their internal ecosystems to innovate like startups, and the lean product lifecycle. He also holds a PhD in psychology, which this will be interesting, I'm sure, and an MBA. He has worked with several large organizations, including Rabobank, American Express, Standard Bank, Unilever, Airbus, Pearson, General Electric, and Whirlpool, to name a few. He co-designed Pearson's product lifecycle, which is an innovation framework that won the Best Innovation Program 2015 at the Corporate Entrepreneur Awards in New York. He has also been shortlisted for the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award, and he is a contributing writer for Forbes. Welcome, Tendahi, to the What's Next podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and you're my first Brit, I think. So we're trying to hit all the continents. So I'm glad that you found a little time to share with us today. Oh, that's fantastic. It's, it's freezing cold out here. So, you know, and, and also raining, which is very British. So. Yeah, I was going to say no surprise. I'm in, I'm in sunny Southern California, um, uh, but it's a little chilly you. today. I think it's 50 <laughs> Fahrenheit. <laughs> You're breaking my heart. <laughs> well, we like to start off What's Next podcast with something fun I call bullish and bearish. And it's just an opportunity to kind of get the juices flowing and, and start out with something fun. So it's nothing too painful. It's just three quick questions. Uh, the answer will be, you know, bullish that you're uh, for it and bearish if you're against it. And, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, everybody who answers these questions tends to go down the gray zone. So <laughs> right. I, I still, it's tough to get everyone to pick a side, but we'll give it a shot this time. Ready? Yeah. All right. The first one, big companies can act small. Uh, bearish. They don't have to act small. Okay. Good. We'll, dig. we'll dig deeper. Okay, cool. We'll dig deeper. Yep. So hold right. that thought. The next one is small companies can act big. Yes. I'm bullish on that. Yeah. Small okay. companies can act big. All right. And the next one is you can teach people and companies to be better innovators. Definitely. Entrepreneurship is something people can learn. So I'm bullish on that. Excellent. Well, great. I, I knew that you would have uh, some good thoughts there. Uh, so let's dig right in. You know, I, I'm interested to, to double click and unpack the comment you were going to make about uh, big companies being able to act small. What are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, the whole idea. So, so, so for me, I mean, it, it's been like a movement, right, going on, you know, act like a startup. Large companies should act like a startup. It's something that people say all the time. And I think that like people who say that or at least that notion has has underneath it this implicit assumption that um, a large company is like a single monolithic institution with one business model, right? Whereas I tend to think of large companies as like, you know, ecosystems, right? Um, uh, uh, they have like products that are doing well, new products that are just being launched, uh, products that are kind of halfway, products that are failing, 
And so they have like various things that they're working on with various business models. Some of the stuff is successful, some of the stuff might not be successful. And so the question is, can a large company act small and big at the same time, right? Can they execute on their core business while at the same time, you know, running little startups or startup type projects to validate new business models, et cetera. So, so that's my feeling about that. And so before I before I ask my follow-up question, I think it's it's good for the listeners to just do a level set on on kind of your definition of innovation. Right, right. Yeah. So so that's interesting. I mean, so you know, coming from my psychology background, I did a lot of research on creativity. And so to my mind, I was trying to think like, what is it that takes something really creative to become, you know, an a, a successful innovation? And then it suddenly hit me that, you know, a lot of companies set up innovation labs and they do idea competitions and, and, the, and the focus is usually on like great ideas. But actually, an idea becomes a successful innovation to the extent that it gets sustainable traction, to the extent that it can support its own scale, it can support its own success, right? And so for me, innovation is this combination of really cool, great ideas with like sustainable business models. I think once you crack those two parts of the equation, you're much more likely to get something that sticks and then is able to grow and actually scale in the marketplace. And so if you're, you know, if for our listeners, if you're a even a small company or medium company and you're trying to go down this path, and I and I love that that definition of creativity and innovation and the sustainable business model, you know, what kinds of decisions do they need to make in order to carve out enough people, money, funding, time, metrics, you know, all the things that are required to give it a chance to even be successful. Because I, I fear that some people right. will do, you know, a half-hearted effort. And then when it doesn't pay back quickly enough, they hit the eject buts button just as it was starting to, to take off because they don't have the patience or the stamina to work through it. So when you work with companies and you give advice about, look, if you're really going to try to innovate, here are the things that, that critical success factors around yeah. that people and time uh, component. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So one of the questions, like, you know, sometimes when, when I'm giving talks, I often ask people, like, what's, what, what's the innovation ambition of their company? This is, this is a concept that was published in the Harvard Business Review article, I think, a couple of years ago. And it's this whole idea that, you know, a company should have a balanced portfolio of products you know how hard it is. You know, you know when people like give you advice to like make hay while the sun shines? Like the reason why that's something to say at all is because it's hard for people to make hay while the sun shines, right? And so the question is like, can, can the large company make a decision that it's going to set aside part of its investment portfolio to work on future-facing products and ideas while it's running its, 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 its core business? And once it makes that decision... It then has to make the decision, which is what we're learning now with the Lean Startup Movement, design thinking, and Agile, that you cannot use traditional management practices to manage innovation. Because if you do that, you start asking the wrong questions at the wrong time. And so it becomes important for large companies to start thinking about what is it that makes innovation successful, right? What is it that actually makes a, a, a product successful and, it, and, and then use innovation metrics to track you know, the success of, of that product. And, and to my mind, it's probably like three or four things. Like you have to find a real customer need and a real problem to solve. So, you know, before you actually understand what that is, you cannot ask for five-year projections. Like, it makes no sense to ask a team to give you five-year projections when they don't even know what the customer need is. So the right question at the right time would be, you know, whose problem are we solving? And, and are we doing that really well? You know, creating the solution that solves that problem finding the right channels, the right price points, the right 
growth engines for that for, for that particular product. All of these things are questions you can ask and track. So now you don't have to take money away from a product before it's ready, because by using innovation metrics, you can actually see whether or not it's on its way to get sustainable traction. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, I think that's a great description that people action, you know, actionable advice that they can take away because I think that's the most difficult thing. If you're in a very large organization, you know, it could be a rounding error to go test some of those things to the side. Like you said, some of their products are being very successful. Some are in the beginning stages of being successful. Some are failing and are going to be um, uh, eliminated. Others are just in concept phase. And and yeah. if you have that kind of uh, corporate culture um, by which innovation and failure is rewarded both ways, uh, because one leads to the other. I think that it's great. In smaller companies, it gets tough, right? Because if you go, well, I'm going to carve out two people and there's only six people, that's a big commitment, right? Yeah, that is true. But I mean, do you, I mean, so here's a, so, so this is an interesting dilemma for me. Like, is it really carving out people or, or carving out time and protecting time? Because I think one of the things that, you know, if you're, if you're a smaller company and you have limited resources, you can, you can make the commitment to carve out time to say, you know, we're going to have these two or three people dedicate this level of time to their um, to, 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 to this particular project, and we're going to follow these steps, and we're going to measure and track progress in this way. I don't think it's a, I don't think the choice is as binary as people try and make it sometimes. Well, so do you think that that has something to do with the whole strategy of the company and the fact that I know you're a big fan of, of making sure that um, beyond these sort of experiments, right? Aligning innovation with the corporate strategy is critical to success. Yes, I'm actually, a, I'm actually a real, I'm actually like vehemently opposed to this idea that you can just gather people around and tell them to come up with ideas without giving them a canvas to paint on. And so, I actually think that you know, in order, especially if you have limited resources, this works better for you if you have limited resources. You have to be thinking about where's the world going, what are the key trends that are going to affect our company. And how are we going to use innovation to respond? And this innovation strategy then informs your ideation rather than just work on random ideas. Because if you just work on random ideas, first of all, you know you don't know whether or not those are, those things are going to have a positive impact on your company. And then if they do succeed, they, if they're not aligned to your strategy, you don't even know what to do with them. And so you know people start also. I know that innovations fail, but sometimes companies can't even manage success. Like when an idea succeeds because it's not aligned to any strategic goal they have and then they don't know what to do with it. And then that becomes wasted resource as well. So what's the best way to close that gap between the two? So I so so there's two things that are there's there's two things that you can do there. And I like to call it like this conversation between like innovation strategy and innovation management. So if you're gonna develop an innovation strategy, I think that every company should have an innovation thesis, which is a point of view about where the world is going and how they're going to use innovation to respond. And that thesis defines the kinds of projects they're going to invest in and the kind of things they're not going to invest in. And then when they're thinking about working on ideas, the first question is, is this idea aligned to our innovation thesis? And if it is, then you start you know, investing in those ideas. Now, when you start investing in ideas, you need an innovation management framework that says, these are the questions that we ask at the beginning, and these are the small investments that we actually make when we're working on those ideas. So, for example, you know, some of the companies I work with, you know, they invest a small amount of money for exploration where teams just go out and kind of learn customer needs and figure out if they're working on the right solution. They might invest a little bit of money on like building prototypes and minimum viable products and iterating your way towards finding the right solution. 
They might then make a bigger investment to test the rest of the business model, channels, um, you know, can it really be done? Can it scale before they then invest a final large sum of money to actually scale the product in the in, in, in the market? And this kind of incremental investing attached to an innovation thesis allows you to learn whether or not the product is going to be successful. But what's interesting about that is that like if you're investing in like five or six of these product ideas that are testing your innovation thesis, by running these incremental experiments, you also learn if the thesis is correct and you can make adjustments to the thesis as you go as well. Well, and, and I think that's really logical. I worry if it sounds, if somebody's listening, that it sounds really complicated, right? Or a lot of moving parts and you know they don't potentially have the skill set internally to run that kind of framework or management process, um, the reviewing right. process, et cetera. So especially as you get into smaller organizations. And so how, mm-hmm. how do they reconcile those two things? Like I really want to innovate and I'm, I'm listening to this podcast and, and I get it and I understand it. What's my first step if I don't have that capability internally? Right. So I, I'm one of, so I've, I've been, I've been, I've, I get into a lot of arguments with, with a lot of folks about like what people can do and can't do in terms of skills. Um, I've, I've, I've had loads of clashes with UX people about like who's allowed to do research in large organizations. It's like people don't, people, other people can't do research. You have to get real researchers to do it, you know, stuff like that. I actually feel that like, like a colleague of mine, Tristan Cromer, says if you're going to point a boat in the right direction, you don't jump in the river and then turn the boat around. You jump in the boat, start rowing, and then you turn the boat, the boat to, to, to point in the right direction. So I always, I always try and encourage people to start with like just a minimum viable ecosystem. Just get together, you know, do, do a small workshop, maybe half a day with your, with your colleague, maybe even two hours. You know, what are the key trends that are going to be impacting us and what do we want to use innovation you know, for? And then you know, identify a couple of ideas and then just start. Like, let's, you know, let's start talking to customers. Let's follow this particular um, you know, thread here. Let's, you know, let's invest a little bit. And then as you start to do that, you start to run into problems and challenges and things that are working and things that aren't working. And in resolving those things, you start developing your skill set. It's not like university where you have to wait until you get your degree before you get the job, right? It's kind of a learn by doing thing, as long as you've got the right orientation. It's like learning how to ride a bike, right? <laughs> it's, it's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just have to get, you just have to get on the bike. Like there's no like you can read like 20 books about riding bikes and then... <laughs> It's not really going to help you once you start like you're trying to ride the bike. No, yeah. and trust me, you fall a couple times, you'll figure out how not to do it again. <laughs> exactly. Right. Or, or at least you'll figure out how to fall without breaking your hand. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Don't put your hand down. You know, note to self. <laughs> and so, exactly. you know, do you think that applying some of those lean startup techniques that have you know sort of run through the business world over the last like decade will, will help people in that kind of iterative, small, short sprints? Yes, they will. But here's what I would encourage people to do. And this is something that's probably easily done, but, I, but people don't really want to do it. Because what happens when people are wanting to apply lean and design thinking is they ask you, should I, should I now do an MVP? Like they're looking at it from a tactical perspective. And I always say, like, try and think about it from first principles, right? What are the underlying principles, right? And one of the underlying principles is simply this. We don't take a business or an idea to scale before we understand if the business model is going to work. Then the next principle is like, well, what does a working business model looks like, look like? Well, a working business model looks like when you're making stuff people want, which is exactly meaning that you have to go back a step and figure out whether or not you're making stuff people want, which means figure out what the customers need, figure out whether or not you have the right solution, and then figure out whether or not you have the right business model, right? 
These are the reasons why we, we do these things. And then once you understand those principles, you yourself in your businesses can be creative in terms of coming up with techniques of how to test ideas, right? And then, and, and I've seen companies come up with things that we're not even in the Lean Startup book, come up with really great experiments, really great research studies, really great customer interview techniques, really great smokescreen, you know, really great ideas that are not in, are not in any book, but it's because they understand the, the first principles and then they use their creativity and their limited resources and constraints to work in their context and environment, right? And so do you think beyond sort of lean startup, you know, I've always been a fan of the business model canvas, um, you know, before you and I connected, uh, do you, I, I think that's a great way I, I'm a visual learner, you know, and I'm a, let right. me write it down and mull through it. Then, then I'm a read learner. I'm that's sort of not my thing. And so the, the canvas really helps me even thinking through an idea that I may want to work through. For those people who, who are listening and don't know a lot about the, the business model canvas, anything you could share would be great. Yeah, so the, the business model canvas is, is one of my favorite tools for, for, for this basic reason, is that like, you know, it's, it's, it's highly visual, right? It's a big chart that you put on a wall, you know, and then it's got like, it's got these nine business model blocks on it, like, you know, channels, you know, customer segments, value proposition. And then what you do is you, you write on a post-it note all your ideas about you know, each, one of those, each one of those segments. And what we encourage people to do when I'm working with folks is just write one idea per post-it note. So if it's a customer segment, write one customer segment. If it's a value proposition, write one value proposition. If it's a channel, write one channel. And then like, you know, if you've got two or three channels you're thinking about, put them on three separate post-it notes and then put them on the canvas right, as, 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 as post-it notes. And then after they finish completing the canvas, I ask them to step back from the canvas and review each post-it note on whether or not it's knowledge or an assumption, right? And then I say, put a big red X on every post-it note that's an assumption that you don't have evidence for. And then, they, and then they do that, right? They put the red X, they put the red X, they put the red Xs on there. And then when they step back, I say, can you see on your canvas the knowledge to assumption ratio, right? Some of the post-it notes you put on there, you have knowledge and evidence. And some of the post-it notes you put on there, you don't. And now it's up to you to solve this equation. Turn everything that's an assumption to knowledge. And, and the more you do that, the more you get ready to scale. And then they can pick any one of those post-it notes, prioritize them, and then start thinking about how to turn that assumption into knowledge, right? And that's where you can then start to apply the Lean Startup techniques in terms of turning assumptions into knowledge. And I think doing it visually like that and in a way that embodies the design it kind of allows people to feel their way through and really understand what they're working towards. And when you do that, I would guess that it isn't about having kind of the same people having the conversation. One of my previous guests, Lisa Bodell on, on my podcast, was sharing this kind of diversity of teams. The diversity is not just between gender, um, yeah. you know, that it is really a diversity in thinking styles. And if you get the same team together to kind of work through this business model canvas or ideation, yeah. and it's the same group of people that have always sort of do this work, I'm guessing that they come up with kind of the same ideas and, and they're kind of, uh, as another guest of mine says, you get, they get caught in the chicken cage, right? Where they, you let them out of the chicken cage, they end up going back in because it's where they're comfortable in their thinking right. styles. Uh, exactly. And exactly. Uh, uh, so I, I'm guessing that really considering who you put in that room to go through that exercise mm -hmm. is critical mm -hmm. to the success either way. Yes, it's really critical to success. And what, 
What, what innovation teams tend to do is that certain people innovation teams want to avoid. They want to avoid the MBAs. They want to avoid folks from compliance. They want, they want to avoid folks from legal. And they want to avoid any kind of leadership guy, like a C, a, a, you know, a chief operations officer or some person who can kind of throw dust on what they're trying to, to actually do. But, what, but one of the things we learn is like, like the more cross-functional people you have within that team that's doing the ideation, the faster you move. So, for example, sometimes designers and, and innovators are scared to run experiments because they think legal won't allow it. But if you have a, if you have a, a person from legal on your team, they can tell you straight away what you can do and what you can't do, which means you actually go faster, right? And so it's, it's one of those things that I think that everybody should be thinking about, building cross-functional teams. And not just cross-functional in terms of roles within the organization, but also psychologically cross-functional. Like you need like, you know, you know, deep thinkers, you need action-oriented people, you need creatives, you need, you need that whole mix to just make sure that things are, are kind of moving. Like that's kind of nice creative tension, you know? Yeah, I mean, even, you know, to your point, extrovert, introvert, same kind of thing, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Quiet and steady hand is sometimes good for those that get excited about the shiny thing in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because you see, business model design is like, it's, it's, it's kind of part design, but also part review, because you have to review assumptions, and then part decision making. So which priority assumption are we going to test first? And what are we going to do tomorrow? So that whole combination, like that's what makes innovation. Like there's not an innovation that's ever been done by a single function in an organization. Innovation necessitates collaboration across functions, especially if we're talking about innovations being creative ideas and sustainable business models. You know, business models start to touch sales, marketing, operations, channels, you know, logistics. And so there's no person that's ever succeeded doing all that work by themselves. And thinking about it right from the beginning and collaborating right from the beginning just means you go faster. Yeah. So Mark Bonchek explained this to me uh, brilliantly, where he said, you know, many companies will try to replicate a, another company's business model. So you could use the airline as an easy, right? It's a low cost airline. Like I'm just going to copy, you know, Southwest Airlines in the United States and I'm going to make it, you know, and do it a low cost airline in Europe. Uh, and some, some in Europe have, have done it and some others haven't, right? And have failed. Uh, and, and others in the United States as well, both ways. He said, but what's really difficult to replicate beyond the business model is the mental model you know, is the way yes. that they do it, how they do it. And so when innovating, I'm guessing that it isn't just about um, a process or a product, or it, it's also in the people side of it uh, mm -hmm. and the mental model and how they approach it. And then, and then living and breathing that internally, because I think one of the things that, that we've just called out in the last few minutes was it needs to be cross-functional. So avoid those silos internally, you know, have different, different thinking styles, you know, have kind of a goal around what you, what you want to achieve through innovation. What's the best way to do that? But it has to be yeah. that the company is also pivoting its mental model towards being more innovative generally, where you're not carving out time. It's just, it happens naturally. Exactly. And, 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 uh, you know, I have this, uh, this kind of thing that I always repeat, which is, you know, people talk about culture a lot. They talk about, you know, innovation culture, innovation culture. And when people talk about that, they talk about it as if it's some sort of vibe. Like people think of culture like it's a vibe, like a company has a vibe, right? But actually vibes in a company are created by what we celebrate and reward as leaders. And so in kind of 
started to think about cross-functional collaboration, running experiments, pivoting, and making incremental investments, like all of these things, all of these tools and techniques start to become the embodiment of the culture because cultures need artifacts and practices, right, that happen on a regular basis. Without artifacts and practices, you don't really see a culture at work. One of the things that I like to say is like um, a culture is defined by what people are embarrassed to do in public. And so, it, you know, the question becomes, you know, what are people embarrassed to do in public in your company, right? And that becomes, you know, the culture of, of your organization. Yeah, you know, getting the honor uh, to work at what many call the most innovative company in the world <laughs> at Salesforce. Uh, right. I would say that it runs deep in the culture. You know, it's, right. it, it embodies kind of everything we do um, in just not even on the product side, but just even on the way we run teams and groups and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a mm-hmm. bottoms up approach, uh, which allows, you know, everybody to feel like they're participating in, in innovating, if you will. Um, and- yeah. But I mean, if you really think about it, cultures need rituals, right? I mean, like you, the culture cannot exist in the abstract. The cul- culture is embodied in practice. That's the only way it, 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 it can actually stick. And so you can actually stand on the stage and pontificate as a leader about wanting more innovation in your company. But then if you turn around and pull out a 30-page business case and hand it to an innovation team, what you're speaking about and the culture that you're embodying are, are contradictory. And what we try and do is surface that to, to leaders to say, you know, for your cultures to work, you also need to start instituting the right practices and tools and, and rituals and you know, collaborative methodology. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into something that I thought uh, that you recently wrote in Forbes: uh, eight ways to transform your company's innovation culture. And I and I really enjoyed it, right? Because I love that it's just sort of like eight things. <laughs> it's not, you right, know. Right, and by right, the way, right. you know, each of the eight could have you know 500 things underneath them, but there are just eight. <laughs> right. So if right. you wouldn't mind, right. you know, as we kind of wrap this up. Uh, Walk us through kind of those those eight, if you wouldn't mind. I know it's kind of focus on why, begin with discovery, right? right? Get air cover, right. executive buy-in, right. work with early adopters, and get an early win. Yeah. 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 No. So, okay. So let's go with that. So a lot of companies just sort of start changing, right? They just go, you know, we need to do this. And I think one of the things you you you, you said earlier was about how, like, you know, you can imitate another company's business model. So you can go low cost or you can say, you know, Facebook are doing this and, and we need to, to, to actually do it too. But I actually think that like transformation or changing your company is so painful that if you actually don't know what, you, what, what you're doing it for, it, it'll be hard to actually push it through. And that's what we're talking about earlier of why a company needs an innovation thesis. What's changing in the world and what do we actually need to do to, 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 to actually respond and then like every time i get brought into a company and this is the second element like every time i get brought into a company they ask me to do something they've seen happen in another organization like come and do this particular thing that's happening at 3m or do it at at at, you know do what they're doing at intuit but actually if you're going to set up an innovation lab or, or build a skunk works or whatever it is that you think works it's impossible to do that in a way that helps your company if you're just imitating another company so it's actually better to do some discovery work to find out what the unique challenges in your company are and then use those to, to, to actually make decisions, right? And that's, I think that's really important. And then a third element that you, that's in the article is, is what I call getting air cover. 
one of the reasons why innovation efforts fail is because innovators try and run it like a guerrilla movement where you're kind of undercover in the grassroots and you're trying not to be found out. But actually, eventually, especially if you're going to do the combination of creative ideas and successful business models, eventually executives will find out what you're doing. And if they're not bought in, they're the ones that will determine the mortality rate of your ideas, right? And so it's important to get air cover because it's impossible to do this kind of work without executive buy-in, right? And at the same time, middle managers are always getting a really bad rap, which is like the fourth thing, which is like executive buy-in is is not enough. You need middle managers because C-level executives will will tend to pass the work down to their middle managers and then the middle managers don't get it, right? Or they're being incentivized by C-level executives to deliver on revenue while being asked to manage innovation projects as well. And so you have to really work with middle managers. And I know that a lot of the innovation teams that I work with are really snooty about middle managers. They're really insulting and they don't really want to work with them. But it's impossible to do this in a sustainable way if you, um, if you don't work with uh, middle managers. And then like a, a lot of companies are also impatient. They want to like go big straight away. But I always say like, you know, don't start by going big, work with the early adopters first. They've, in every company, there are people that get it. Like if you start with them, that allows you to get to the sixth principle that I talk about, which is getting an early win, right? So if you work with early adopters and you get an early win and start celebrating that win, then it becomes easier for other people to start you know, seeing the value of what you're doing. And then like the seventh principle, a whole bunch of people that I work with uh, find this really difficult. There's something, you know, I, I'm a former academic, right? And academics are really snobby. And there's something really snobby about designers as well and, 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 and startup and entrepreneurship folks. And so they really, they really hold on to the principles. Like, that's not lean enough. That's not agile enough, et cetera, et cetera. And so I always say, like, be tough on, on, on the principles of lean, but be loose on the tactics, you know? It's, you know, even, out, even you know, when, you, when you're doing a transformation, you have to do it in a way that allows the company to adopt it. In an, in an incremental way. And then, and, then, and then I think the final thing I have in there is something about hearts and minds. Like, you know, it's not, when you're transforming a company, it's not about logic. Like, even though it makes sense to all of us that companies should be innovating and that technology is disrupting the world, there are actually people in the world where that doesn't make any sense to them at all. And we always tend to look at them as if they're like heretics or something, right? And, we, and we're really tough on them, but we, we should be having conversations that are much more um, that are much more tolerant and much more and much more patient to get buy-in from our colleagues. Tendai, that was great. I think those eight really embody ways that people can uh, work their way through either injecting innovation into a culture that has yet to embrace it, or to mm-hmm. accelerate and amplify within organizations that are that are in the middle of trying to do this. I, I like you at the beginning of bullet, when I asked you the questions on bullish and bearish, I think, I think every company can learn how to innovate better. Uh, but yeah. I think it starts at the top, right? People, the executives, the entire team has to be committed. And it's all about the mm-hmm. why, why does innovation matter to us? Exactly. Why should we be doing it? Why are we doing it? And, and I'm a firm believer that it should pivot because the customers are demanding more and different things from them. Exactly. But there's also another, there's a second decision that to be made too. And that's the reason why we, 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 especially I do the work that I do. 
And that is, and that is, do you want to do innovation as like a series of one-off projects, or do you want to do innovation as like something that's just sustainable, repeatable, and just what the company does on an ongoing basis? Like that choice is really is really important. If you want to do sustainable, repeatable innovation that's embedded as part of your culture, you then have to do a lot of work to at least transform how your organization works. Um, and so, and so that's also key, I think, in 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 in, in this decision making. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today today on the What's Next podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, and thank so you. the last the last question I have for you is within you know sort of what you cover and think about and pay attention to every day. Uh, what's next for you? So, what's next for me right now is I'm working on thinking about how companies can kind of manage their their portfolio strategically, their portfolio of products. And, and, and so I'm, I'm thinking about taking lean, lean startup practices to strategy making. So that's, that's kind of what, I, what, what I'm working on right now, building like portfolio management systems and ways of thinking about your innovation portfolio and balancing portfolios beyond running an experiment on a particular product. How can you take those same practices and, and use a portfolio approach to, to managing your, your, your companies? Right. So that's, yeah, that's what's next for me right now. Well, excellent. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the sunny London day <laughs> that you're experiencing. Uh, and I hope to have you back soon. And please, please keep in touch today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. What a great conversation with Tendahi Vicky. As my first guest from the UK, he did not disappoint. It was all about innovation and the things we can do to instill it into our companies, big or small. The, the takeaways for me were great. It was that middle managers need to get involved. Everyone can learn to be better innovators. Uh, you just have to commit. But first and foremost, it must start with the executive. It has to start at the C-suite and work its way down. You have to make a commitment to help your people protect the time, carve out the time to focus on innovation. It can't just be an afterthought. So you've got to get together cross-functional teams, have diversity of thinking styles, uh, understand the innovation metrics that you're going to be following, and what, first and foremost, what is the customer need? I thought it was fantastic. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please subscribe to the What's Next podcast. Tell your friends about it, listen in, and I look forward to seeing you the next time. Thank you very much.